What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. In January, the voters of Alameda County elected a new district attorney to office and not just any DA, a civil rights attorney known as one of the Bay Area's leading progressives. I'm talking about Pamela Price. Her first hundred days have been full of changes, pushback, media firestorms, and progress. We are joined this morning by Ms. Pamela Price. I'm going to chat with her for a bit, and then we're going to open up the lines for your calls and questions. Good morning, Madam DA. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Madam DA, I want to actually just open up with a broadly. Talk about your first few months as district attorney. Uh, Very challenging. We walked into an organization that essentially the organizational structure had been pretty much neglected for years and Um, The staff was traumatized in many ways. There was a lot of fear and anxiety because they were not prepared for us to enter the organization. They had been uh, apparently within the criminal justice system. The expectation had been uh, that, you know, the status quo would continue to be the dominant (laughs) feature of the DA's office and when that happened people were really unprepared for that. So we've we've had to try to settle folks down and get people to understand that the sky did not fall because a black woman is now in charge. There's been a lot of racism uh, inside and outside the organization. Um, But it's been, you know, it's been fun for us in some ways because I have a great team and we just take it every day at a time, you know, one day at a time. And my team is really, really committed to serving the people of Alameda County. So that part has been inspiring. Madam DA, what do you mean when you say you have a vision to end institutionalized injustice in criminal justice? Yeah, well, this this Alameda County is not exempt from the country and the legacy of slavery, from slavery to mass incarceration is what we have experienced in this country. And I am there to push back against that, to try to unwind the systemic ways in which black and brown people have been over-criminalized, in which poverty and mental illness have been um, criminalized. And that's, you know, the mission that we're on is both how do we administer justice in a way that doesn't depend on your race or your ethnicity or your national origin or your income level or in Alameda County, your zip code. Um, so that's that's the task before us. Most district attorneys are called the top cop, and a lot of DAs did indeed used to be some form of law enforcement. But you come from a civil rights background. What has it been like adjusting to being on the other side? It's not been an adjustment for me because I understood that my role as a civil rights lawyer was representing victims. That's what I've been doing and holding people and institutions and government organizations accountable. And that's really the heart of the criminal justice system is supposed to be about helping victims and and establishing and holding people accountable when they cause harm. 
And so I've had to do that. That's it's the essence of what I've been doing. And so when I look at the criminal justice system, I have been a civil prosecutor. I have experience in the criminal justice system, both within, without, from a whole variety of lenses. And so I've been very familiar and engaged in reforming the California um, correctional system. So I understand the system. And so it has not been a challenge for me walking in and bringing the lens of my experience to bear on this system. Natural to me. Part of the difficulty in holding police accountable has historically been because district attorneys and police need each other to be successful. How are you navigating that reality along with your commitment to hold cops accountable for bad behavior? I am very clear with the police chiefs that I work with now and and will be working with you know, to the extent that individual management as well as the local unions, that we are going to hold bad cops accountable for bad acts. And I think that if you are a police officer who supports the Constitution, that should not be a problem for you. And I'm finding that, you know, my experience both representing law enforcement as well as suing law enforcement is is has actually prepared me for that as well. I'm not someone that says all cops are bad, but I'm also not someone that looks at law enforcement with rose-colored glasses because I understand the misconduct and the abuse of power um, can be devastating to, to our community. And so I am not one that's prepared to turn a blind eye to injustices. And I'm just very upfront with police agencies and and the leaders of the different um, law enforcement agencies around the county with that. And they, for the most part, seem to be okay with that. We expect law enforcement to do their job. I expect them to figure out if somebody gets killed in this community, who did it? I expect them to have a high homicide solve rate because we cannot tolerate people killing other people. And so that's, to me, where the focus needs to be, is on investigating and solving violent crimes and bringing those people to to justice so that we can then assess what needs to happen. That's the job. Madam Dia, you reopened, I believe it was eight cases of police violence that your predecessor didn't prosecute. I know you can't talk about the cases specifically, but can you talk about the criteria you use to decide which cases to open and which ones not to? Sure. I can talk a little bit in general terms about the criteria, but I also want to point out that when we got there, there were a number of cases pending that were not being prosecuted, particularly the um, Jason Fletcher case where he shot Stephen Taylor in the Walmart. Um, That case was essentially sitting on the shelf on the back burner unassigned to anyone. It was not being prosecuted, even though it had been uh, the case had been filed. And so we have a full load of cases uh, that some that were there that we've had to review uh, somewhere advancing. Um, And in addition to the ones that we chose to reopen for investigation, one of the criteria was what 
what were the circumstances under which the case was closed. And we had a number of cases where my predecessor closed them. I think there were six cases that got closed in the month of December. And that, you know, raised red flags for us because why would you close all of these cases suddenly that had been pending for such a long time? Um, there were cases that we knew uh, just as residents of Alameda County that the public had questions about, that we had questions about. And so we wanted to look at those questions. We cannot tolerate misconduct or murder even by police officers. Um, we're very concerned about the situation at, at Santa Rita County Jail. And so we looked at one case where we may not um, you know, we want to make sure that we're we're monitoring when people die in the jail. What are the circumstances under which they die? I actually had a question about that and, and your authority uh, to deal with Santa Rita Jail. It's one of the most deadly jails in the country. You're, you're, we're talking about upwards of 70 people dying inside of that jail since 2014. And I believe we're at six people that have died in the jail so far this year. It is a concern. Santa Rita County Jail is the fifth largest jail in the country. And clearly we as taxpayers and residents of Alameda County, we've invested a lot of resources in that jail. We have a right to transparency. Certainly we understand uh, the sheriff, the new sheriff has a commitment to transparency for the families of people who perish inside that jail, which I think is absolutely critical. The families should no longer have to question, well, what what really happened to my loved one. We have an obligation to hold the deputies who manage that facility to the highest constitutional standards. Because when we look at in custody deaths, there is no place where you are more in custody and therefore should be safer than Santa Rita County Jail. One of the first things you did was build a mental health coalition uh, across the county. What is its purpose and why is it one of the first things you decided to do? We know that um, many of the issues that arise in our in our neighborhoods, in our certainly in the Santa Rita County Jail and in our court system involves people who have challenges with mental health, whether it's an illness or a crisis, and people need support. And we were clear coming in the door that that was not there. We found a system of collateral courts, and I hesitate to call it a system, a number of collateral courts inside the DA's office and inside the criminal justice system that were understaffed, underutilized, and most of them had a mental health diagnosis as a criteria for even being eligible uh, for diversion. And so it became critical for us to address the deficiencies in, in our role in those courts to the extent that we were responsible for creating and forming them as well as staffing them. We also wanted to, I personally wanted to make sure that I was responsive to the cries of the community and the cries of families, uh, particularly those who deal with people suffering who are severely mentally ill. And so we found the greatest injustice, as we know, is often with respect to health care. And mental health is something that affects all of us. And so we wanted to bring voices to the table from around the county, from a variety of different perspectives, to advise us on how do we begin to get 
the services and the support that people need um, to navigate the criminal justice system and to get people out of the criminal justice system when they don't belong there. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price, and we're going to give you an opportunity to ask the District Attorney your questions. The number to call if you have a question for District Attorney Pamela Price is 510-848-4425, 510-848-4425. There has been a lot of... Um, media maelstrom uh, uh, about you in the headlines. Uh, I imagine given what we saw take place in San Francisco with Tessa Boudin, you were bracing yourself for that as you entered into office. Have you been taken aback, though, by by the avalanche of, of, of attacks that you've had to deal with in your first few months in office? I would say yes and no. Um, Yes, because it seemed to be so quickly. We had barely been in office. It felt like two weeks and already people were criticizing everything we did. And I thought that took me aback because obviously we know that that level of criticism and scrutiny was never visited on my predecessor. Um, No, because I'm a black woman in America. And I am part of the progressive movement of district attorneys across the country. And we are under attack across the country. I saw what the Pennsylvania legislature tried to do to Larry Krasner. We see what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida and what now Georgia has passed a new law, what's happened in Baltimore and around the country. So I was not so surprised that suddenly they discovered that there was a little black woman in Alameda County who had also um, been elected to bring reform to this system. Um, It is unfortunate that those, a lot of folks don't understand the context in which they stepped into because it's already been set. We know that the folks came from San Francisco once and they were emboldened by the way in which they attacked my friend Chesa. They came to Alameda County and often I see a lot of the venom and the hate is coming from San Francisco and it's coming from around the country now. And so I think folks here locally really need to look at Who is sponsoring your activity and who is inspiring you to take a position against your district attorney who's barely been in office? I think we're now a little bit over 100 days, but the the quickness with which the opposition managed to formulate itself, I don't believe is accidental. Are you bracing yourself for a a recall effort, DA Price? Not at all. Um, This is Alameda County, and I have been a resident of this county for most of the last 45 years. I was embraced by this county. I had a business and and represented people across this county. Um, I just feel very, very grounded in my community. I got to be the lawyer that I have been and had a great legal career here. And I'm a member of the faith community. So I understand. And if if people didn't understand that that rally that my supporters had on Sunday, April 23rd, should have let everyone know that we are not having a recall in Alameda County. 
We are in conversation with District Attorney of Alameda County, Ms. Pamela Price. We are going to be taking your questions starting now. The number to call is 510-848-4425, 510 All right, Madam DA, the phone lines blew up as soon as I announced that number. <laughs> Folks want to holler at you, so let's start with Aiden in Oakland. Good morning, Aiden. You are on the air. Good morning. Good morning. What's your question? My question is why Pamela Price insists on being addressed as Madame. That's it. I don't insist on being addressed in any particular way. (laughs) We adopted that moniker. My staff and my team really adopted that as as a matter of of respect for the office and for the achievement. I introduced myself as Pamela. Yeah, I wasn't dictated to call her Madam District Attorney. It is how I have heard her being addressed. I think across the board, right, we give uh, people titles that are in elected office. Um, all right, let's go to our next uh, caller, Susan in Oakland. Good morning, Susan. You are on the air. Good morning. I'm representing the veteran teachers of the Oakland Unified School District with my question. We're also trying to be progressive in bringing culturally responsive curriculum to interest and include our rainbow of students that we have in Alameda County, especially in Oakland. And I was wondering if you could speak to the connection between the criminal justice system and, and juveniles and adults who have really felt that the educational system maybe was there, but wasn't really addressing what they wanted to learn about. And therefore, they kind of checked out of it and checked into the jails. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I stand in solidarity with our teachers in in the Oakland Unified School District. What we pay teachers and how we educate our children is is, uh, is a tragedy, and we need to do more. Um, We know, and I think most people understand, the school-to-prison pipeline that has been acknowledged and documented and we now have in before I got into this position we were doing something about it we were trying we understood that we had to break the school to prison pipeline and that is certainly the educational system has been tied and to some extent um co-opted by the prison industrial complex that was able when we passed uh, these harsh sentencing and harsh punishment laws, it became incumbent upon, uh, and we invested in prisons. We built prisons instead of schools. That shift in our priorities meant that if we built prisons, because we had built them, we had to fill them up. And unfortunately, young people were prime targets to to become part of the criminal justice system and to go to prison and easily subject to these long sentences because they, you know, they're young. And so you could give a young person 100 years and know that you would have that body to be able to, to, to monetize. Um, and so I'm very much aware of the need to continue to support education as an alternative to incarceration. Absolutely. 
Let's go to Alameda now. Sarah and Alameda, good morning. You are on the air. Hi, good morning. And um, just so happy, Madam Price, that, that you are elected. I voted for you. Um, and I have a, a couple questions Yeah, about uh, Santa Rita. I had the opportunity to spend the night there um, against my will. And um, so just a couple comments about that experience, because uh, I think very few white ladies in their 50s get that experience. Um, one was that when uh, driven out to Santa, Ra- uh, Santa Rita, uh, then you get one phone call, but you're outside of your um, outside of 510, right? So I didn't get a free phone call. And most people with cell phones. Anyway, so that was one first experience. Second experience was you only know your phone numbers that you have memorized because you don't get your cell phone. Third thing was um, the only numbers on the wall to call are bail bond numbers. Like I'd like to see in the cell some um, uh, service numbers, some people who could help you understand what's happening to you or offer some service to you uh, when you're in that cell. Um, My fourth experience was that even though I'm a mom with a full-time job, my bail was set at like something super high. And um, luckily I had family who could, who could bail me out. But the other women that I was with were looking at, at putting on orange suits and spending the long weekend in jail, even though they had kids and jobs. So, yep. S- uh, Sarah, I let you go on because because of how, the special place of loathing I have in my heart for Santa Rita Jail. But I need you to d- get how, ask your question if you have one. I've got other callers I got to get to, dear. Yes, and my my question would be: um, Have you considered? Um, it, it it seemed to me most of the women in that cell needed some services, and I was hoping that like we could get something outside of Santa Rita so that when someone when when you're released at four in the morning. Um, that there's like a warming hut or someplace you could go to and and have a kind of a an offering of some services. Um, yeah. Thank you, sir. I, so, so, so I think the, the question, Madam DA, is, is a, a, around increasing services for folks that do get um, taken to Santa Rita Jail. It is in Dublin. Um, and we know that there was the tragedy of that young woman who was released into the middle of the night and then found dead at the Dublin BART station the next morning. Her name is Jessica St. Clair. Yes. And yes. And we, her death highlighted that problem. Um, it is something that is beyond my jurisdiction as the district attorney, but certainly something that we should be addressing with the sheriff. And I believe she has, uh, Sheriff Sanchez has made a commitment to address that, as well as a community. We need to understand, and we are looking at, how do we incarcerate people? What are the conditions of incarceration? And certainly I am, I am committed to educating my deputies about those circumstances so that they understand when the court violates the Constitution because it is unconstitutional to set bail based on one's ability to pay or not. That is something that is supposed to be 
dictated um, as well as their whether or not the person is a danger to public safety. But we have found that our courts routinely violate the Humphreys decision and the Constitution. And so we're working on that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I too have had the, police are called it an opportunity uh, to spend the night inside a Santa Rita jail on more than one occasion. And I and I can tell you that there's feces and blood and urine and in, uh, on the walls and on the floor and the conditions inside of there are beyond egregious and beyond inhumane. And uh, Sheriff Sanchez made, made a lot of promises as she was on the campaign trail. But if the number of deaths so far this year, any indication doesn't look like things inside of that torture chamber are going to change anytime soon. Um, going to go to Ira in Oakland now. Good morning, Ira. Good morning, Kat Brooks. Thank you for the most important show on KPFA today. Madam District mm-hmm. Attorney, I have two questions. Um, first, do you have, and if not, would you institute a business crimes investigatory unit, for instance, uh, employers who fail to pay minimum wage or steal tips, uh, et cetera, for the those kinds of crimes which affect so many uh, low-income people. And secondly, do you think the uh, line at which the investigation uh, of a possible crime um, should be moved closer to the district attorney's office rather than from uh, within the police department uh, because of the innate prejudice and uh, uh, need by the police to... uh, screw up their their investigations so that they they don't lose face in in making a bad uh, arrest or in uh, ruining their numbers so that they have good uh, closure rates, just moving the district attorney into the investigatory area. Thank you. I'll take my my answer off the phone. Sure. Thank you for the question. Two things. Two questions, two responses. Our office, approximately 25% of our resources are invested and assigned to the Consumer Environmental Worker Protection Division. It is a division that has investigators, um, victim witness advocates, lawyers. It is a significant uh, division within the DA's office that does uh, criminal investigations of business crimes such as wage theft, um, as well as civil prosecutions. Uh, we have a real estate fraud division, a uh, workers' comp fraud division. We have a, a variety of different divisions that deal with fraudulent conduct, both by individuals and by corporations, and they have a very active docket of cases addressing environmental cases, for instance, environmental violations by Kaiser, for one, longstanding um, number of cases. We're looking at some opportunities as we come into this arena uh, to make that unit much more focused on holding uh, businesses that are, in fact, victimizing residents in this county much more active, um, looking at some of the practices that have just been 
allowed to persist or to exist. And in fact, where the DA's office has been in collusion, in fact, with wage violations, trying to make sure that we stop that. Um, on the second side, I'm not able to say that we can um, become more invested or active in investigations. We do have an inspector's division, which has 75 inspectors who are trained investigators. As we know, so most people may know, many of them are retired police officers coming from jurisdictions locally. So they have the investigatory experience that most of them are assigned to assist my deputies in the prosecution. Some of them, however, I do have the opportunity when I I'm aware of a case where I think we need some, we need to take a look. Then my, we do have investigators that can look at, in particular, uh, the officer involved shooting unit, as well as other instances of misconduct. We handle those separately um, from the police agencies. However, we are not in a position to take on the day-to-day investigatory function of law enforcement. And that would not be wise because, you know, my office is small compared to, you know, the the 831 square miles of the county. And we have over 20 law enforcement agencies. So we cannot possibly take that on. Um, we can monitor the cases that come to us. And that is our responsibility to make sure that cases that come to us are coming, that the law enforcement and the investigation have been conducted in a constitutional manner. Thank you, uh, D.A. Price. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Madam District Attorney Pamela Price. We're taking your calls. The number is 510-848-4425. We're going to go across the bridge now. Joel in San Francisco. Good morning. You are on the air. Right, thank you. Hi. Um, I, one thing that most disturbs me about following the whole um, police uh, violence issue is that the um, it seems like white supremacists um, joined the military to get weapons training with the intention to join the police force. And so there's a kind of inbred um, sense of white danger, I guess, for people of color about racist cops. And it seems like that's prevalent, like, all over. And uh, it's disturbing to me. I was wondering what you had think about that and if there's any solution to that problem. Well, we know that policing, independent of the military, certainly law enforcement has a militaristic bent to it, but it is based and derived from and comes from slavery and the need to repress black people specifically that was a major uh, driver of the formation of most police departments as well as anti-union um, using uh, police to suppress union activity and to keep workers down so the 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 origins of policing in and of itself is about authoritarian and white supremacy how do we break that obviously we've failed over the last you know, 300 years, really, we haven't done very well. But we're in a period of time and a season where we're, those of us who are aware of it have to bring that to the forefront. And I think increasingly law enforcement recognizes and certainly 
when we look at just in the last three years from the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, I think the way that prosecutors and, and law enforcement agencies have been immune essentially to the idea that white supremacy is inbred in those institutions, that that we're breaking through on that. In the Bay Area in and of itself, most of the police in the East Bay, most of our um, many of our police uh, departments are under the leadership of black men, which is surprising, but it's real. It's happening. Yeah, I, I, I will say because we've done a few episodes uh, between when I was still the coast of Upfront and here on Law and Disorder of the infiltration, intentional infiltration into police departments by white supremacists. Um, and, and he's right also, uh, intentional infiltration into the military. It is an issue. It is an issue our federal government needs to take much more seriously. Um, but they are more uh, focused on what they would call folks like me, black identity extremists, um, as opposed to the domestic terror of white supremacists in this country. We're going to continue our conversation with the callers. Let's go to Dwayne in Berkeley. Good morning, Dwayne. You are on the air. Good morning, Madame Price. Uh, there have been reports uh, that there have been mass resignations of your staff in the DA's office, and that as a result of that, you're operating with a depleted force, and that combined with your reluctance to prosecute is going to render criminals rampant in the street. Are you interested in addressing that point? Sure. Thank you for the question. The reports of mass exodus are over-exaggerated, to say the least. We have almost 400 employees, and the media has handpicked a few folks to say, oh, look, this person's leaving. I can assure you we have four major court houses in Alameda County, and every day people are showing up to work and doing their job, um, which, you know, trying to really serve the people of Alameda County. So it's really a disservice to the depart the agency as a whole when you have so many people that come to work that actually support the vision. Um, some who were there, some who have been hired. We've hired just as many people as uh, just as many lawyers and people. We've hired almost 40 people across the board, whether you're looking at investigators, um, victim witness advocates. We just hired eight victims witness advocates, which is really critical to serving this community. We've hired almost 22 lawyers to come into the DA's office. And we're telling lawyers who are working in other offices and around the area, come home. If you live in Alameda County, if you were raised in Alameda County, come home. And so these few folks that have decided to do their exit interviews uh, on the media, I get a resignation letter at 3.45 and at 3.52, somebody's on Twitter and doing an interview. That's really misleading to the public. And it's a tactic. It's a way of, of breeding fear and trying to create instability both within the organization and outside in the community. And so we know that that is not true. It's a false narrative. Um, the like I said, when before I got elected and when I got elected, the sky, a black woman took over this agency and the sky did not fall. So we have um, a robust, well, let me say this. When we walked into the organization over the last two years, my predecessor had not hired. So there are 
shortages across the organization. We need more lawyers. We need more victim witness advocates. We need more inspectors. It's not just a county problem, because if you have been following the county, you know that they are not hiring. But certainly within this agency, there was no emphasis on hiring and bringing people in. Um, We are reversing that, and we've been very aggressive from day one about hiring and recruitment and making sure that it's diverse. We came into an organization that has no... Uh, AAPI person that speaks Cantonese or mum or Mandarin, no one. And so where you have an AAPI community that is approximately 30% of our county, we need to have people who speak the language, okay? We need to have people who speak Vietnamese. We need uh, to have a diverse workforce. And that completely had been neglected by my predecessor. We're working to fix that. Um, so, you know, the, the effort to destabilize our administration by saying we're not able to do our jobs is really, um, it's an unfair and, a, and an inaccurate portrait of what's really happening. All right, we've got one more caller on the air, and that is Tony in Lafayette. Good morning, Tony. You are on the air. What's your question? Good morning. A uh, question would be, um, I, I am a uh, supporter and will continue to be a supporter of you, uh, Madam District Attorney, and I hope that you are able to continue your vision of using diversion programs to not incarcerate victimless uh, convicted persons and uh, non-felonious crimes. Uh, I, I feel that our, our, our prisons and jails are, are wrong and don't really re- don't rehabilitate at all. And some people uh, who are convicted of these crimes really need another chance. I wonder if you could comment on that. We found a collateral courts program that had 14 collateral courts and two lawyers assigned to it. And a collateral court is the opportunity to avoid incarceration, to come up with alternatives to incarceration. We restaffed that uh, program. I added six lawyers so that we now have eight lawyers assigned there. I brought in two mental health clinicians, which they had no mental health clinician from the DA's office, but virtually seven of the 10, no, Seven, eleven of the 14 programs required a mental health diagnosis to be eligible. And you had no mental health clinician involved in making that decision. So we've done a lot in the early days to address those um, that kind of negligence. Um, we've launched a pilot program for young people caught with a gun, first-time offenders, to avoid giving them a felony. We're we're giving them the opportunity to complete a mentor diversion program. We're looking for mentors, and we're initiating a mentor uh, partnership with a mentor program that will train and help us to recruit and assign mentors to folks so that we have support for people who are coming into the criminal justice system as an alternative to incarceration. Make no mistake, some people are going to be incarcerated. Some people are so dangerous that they have to be kept away from the public. And we're doing this as we're working through this top of mind is public safety. Um, The public safety, the Council on Criminal Justice Task Force on Long Sentences has just 
recently released a report showing uh, after a year-long study and looking at all of the behavioral health studies and surveys that, that have accumulated to date, long sentences do not keep us safe. Incarceration does not keep us safe uh, across the board. There are exceptions. There are times that, yes, people who kill people are going to be held accountable. Um, however, low-level crimes and folks that don't, crimes that don't involve violence or, or harm to people, and even sometimes when they do involve harm, you have to look at the source and the reason and what are the circumstances. And that's what we're doing to get to the root of violence so that we can interrupt it before it happens. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with District Attorney of Alameda County, Pamela Price. You are running out of time. If you've got questions for the District Attorney, the number to call is 510-848-4425, 510-848-4425. Madam DA, one of the issues that I know you and I both have been vocal about and, and we've talked about in the past is the fact that we have black children being bought and sold in broad daylight on what those of us in the town call E14. Now, your predecessor gave a lot of lip service to addressing that issue, um, and yet we saw no no change um, in, in what happens there. That police themselves drive on, you know, drive right on by, as as if crimes are not taking place with those children. Do you have a plan to address the fact that Oakland is one of the top five cities on the the national circuit of human trafficking? Right. We are in the center of it. And when you look at us geographically, you will, you can easily see how we ended up being this hub. And it is a tremendous crisis for this community that is often uh, overlooked because <laughs> it involves black girls. Um, when you hear about children being kidnapped on the streets and trafficked from here, people being brought here and then shipped out of here on uh, through the waterways, uh, it is horrendous. And yes, what we know is that my predecessor gave lip service. And when I became the district attorney, I found that it was lip service, that the resources were not there. We are in the process of realigning this, these, uh, these units that they claim were there for to support um, and to address this issue. We are in conversation with both the mayor of the city of Oakland as well as Councilwoman Nikki Fortunato-Bass. We are all coming together so that we have a coordinated strategy around how we address this. And that's what it's going to take. My predecessor did not coordinate, did not really have a strategy that involved the whole Bay Area, the whole Alameda County. It, I understand that, that the, the heart of it the epicenter is in Oakland, but I understand that what happens in our town is supported across this county and around this country. And to the extent that I am the district attorney, I have the capacity to look not just down the streets of Oakland, but to look what's the infrastructure that has supported and sustained this trade this trafficking of young black women and young Latina women and, and, and boys as well, you know, and transgender folks. Our 
young people are prey in this community. And it's it's a so much bigger. It's a billion dollar enterprise, and we intend to take it on um, in collaboration with our partners in the city government as well as law enforcement. So we're working on it. We don't have it yet, but we are working on it, and it is a priority. And I, I would assume that I'm right that the working on it is not going to include the criminalization of these children, which has been an issue in the past. Of course not. Of course not. I I have seen that as well as you have. I have fought that. I've rejected that. I called out my predecessor 15 years ago when she was engaging in prosecuting young young folks. Um, and that will not happen. It, it It is a challenge because that's how the system has been set up. And the services have been very limited, sporadic. Um, and certainly in you know, one of the first things that we found was a case where a young woman had been trafficked on the on the streets of Oakland and, and around the Bay Area. She came from outside the Bay. Um, and the young man who we have charged, her pimp, uh, was in the car with her child and he killed the baby. And my predecessor had the young woman who was being trafficked under investigation and refused to release the remains of her child to her and her family. And we have been working mightily to ensure that that baby goes home with his mother and that that family is protected from retaliation, which is real when you start trying to bring people out of that life. And certainly we understand that the violence that um, has increased tremendously around the trafficking associated with the proliferation of guns and gun violence, that all of that is coming together um, and is really creating very dangerous situations for our whole community. But that was a case that we had to intervene in, and and it's a very sad case. But the way in which it was being prosecuted was really, really abhorrent to me. Madam D.A. Price, another place that we've seen over the last almost 50 years uh, where carceral interventions have have failed to keep anyone any safer is when it comes to intimate partner violence. And I'm wondering what your thinking um, is in addressing that issue in our community. We know that there are thousands of women that never call 911 because they're terrified of the police showing up and escalating them going to jail themselves, right? Or or somebody being killed because of police intervention and, and you know, sending someone that's learned to express their trauma through violence to the most violent institution in the world and spitting them back out and expecting things to change seems a little ludicrous to me. Your thoughts? Again, this is an area where we've had a lot of lip service um, and yet very little impact. Um, We recently charged a man who killed Rebecca Jenkins and her 13-year-old daughter who was having a sleepover and shot one of the little girls who was there for the sleepover. We know that intimate partner violence in this community is is out of control. And yet the, what you express is so real, which is one of the things that led us to look at the case in Pleasanton, uh, Cody Chavez, who was killed by the Pleasanton police when uh, in a domestic violence call because we cannot have 
um, people afraid to call for help because they think that the police are going to kill the person who needs help. Um, and so, you know, these are these are tough circumstances that we are definitely committed to looking at from a non looking at in a way that protects victims that empowers survivors uh, to be able to get the help and the support that they need um, without fear and and understanding that we have to tackle it again lip service our um, we have a backlog of domestic violence charges that goes back as far as 2020. That's what we found when we got there. We have a family justice center that is understaffed um, and has a backlog for services of three months. Um, We're working to address that, to make sure that we are getting through just the backlog and trying to create institutional support across the organization, which is why I want to, I have a vision of a gender justice bureau that will not allow this issue to be addressed in a silo that will look at it from a holistic perspective and recognize that violence against women and vulnerable um, intimate partners is something that spans the whole continuum from harassment, intimidation, all the way to rape and murder. And it is about power and the abuse of power. All right, Madam District Attorney, I want to thank you for spending a whole hour with the people this morning. Missed your very busy schedule. We look forward to having you back on these airwaves soon. Thank you. Let's keep the conversation going. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.